It's July 30th, 2016, and this is episode 303 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Ragnar Leaftracer and Chris and Chris Bates. That was the one I had trouble with. <laughs> and Chris Bates. Uh, also with me here today is Pamela Morgan of Empowered Law, and of course a frequent correspondent on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Pamela, thanks for having. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Ragnar, you are working on a project that basically is trying to connect real estate with the blockchain. And Chris, you're working on a project called Bitland that is attempting to, right now you're focused in Ghana, but it's that's for the pilot project, I believe. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, you're focused on essentially trying to put land registries onto the internet. And so these are kind of related, unrelated things. And so I don't know how much necessarily overlap there is between these conversations, but I think it's worth kind of talking about, you know, uh, the, 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 per, the perspective of real estate or land registry versus kind of the way that we do things now and what are really the improvements that are tangible that we can see at this moment. And also kind of how far out are your projects because this is an area that's really been interesting to me and on Ragnar, on your side, I, I kind of see the primary uh, barrier as regulation. And on uh, your side, Chris, I kind of see the primary barrier as lack of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, so, 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 Chris, let's start with you. What are kind of the, what's, what are you doing with Bitland and the registry, and what's your kind of focus right now? So, what we're trying to do with Bitland is using blockchain technology, take the land registries and put them in a public, publicly accessible ledger. Uh, and right now there are not digital land registries in Ghana, so we're trying to simultaneously upgrade their land registries, but as well make them uh, more accessible so they're less likely to be corruptible. Uh, there's a huge problem of corruption in Ghana, so having the central authority have control over a land registry also represents a major problem and could cause major uh, displacement issues. So this is where, as we move in to try to bring the digital infrastructure, uh, we're also trying to ensure that it's transparent and does not create an environment in which the locals can be taken advantage of. And as you pointed out, uh, the infrastructure has to first be there. So we are actually creating physical BitLand centers that have solar-powered Wi-Fi networks to support the blockchain. Uh, we just had our first center um, start to go in development on July 1st. Um, it's, it's on a dirt road, so we're talking about rural, rural Ghana. And this is where um, the center needs to be outfitted and we're building it up. Uh, so once we get that, that first pilot center, we're going to try to move and extend it into the further rural regions, but we're starting, uh, we're starting at the edge and moving as, uh, more towards the rural areas. So the Bitland centers, talk to me a little bit more about that, because that's one of those things that like, I can see the reason why you would need to have it, but it also seems like it's, it's I mean, that's hard, right? Like, it is, it is hard, it's difficult. Well, so one of the issues, when you hear people talk about blockchain being the savior, well, first you have to have electricity, then you have to have internet, then you can have the blockchain. So unless you first have internet and electricity, you can't have the latter. And we're talking about areas where one out of five people doesn't have access to electricity. Um, so they obviously don't have internet access, so you can't have blockchain solutions there. This is where we're trying to 
look at the potential in the digital solutions, but also recognizing that there are physical problems that precede implementing those digital solutions. What was it about Ghana that kind of pulled you to it? Because, I mean, there are a lot of countries in Africa, mm -hmm. and there are different kind of levels of this infrastructure, so it seems like the one you've picked is pretty darn hard. Was mm -hmm. there a particular reason that pulled you? Well, uh, the founder of the uh, company is from Ghana, but one of our logical reasons for going to Ghana is because it is one of the worst and most corrupt areas. That if we can find things that work there, then they will work in the best areas. So uh, instead of trying to start where it's easy, we're going to try to start where it's the most difficult and learn from our mistakes there to find out what will work best. Uh, because inevitably, uh, if we can figure out how to fight corruption in the most corrupt places, then we, when we move into the least corrupt places, we won't be enabling more corruption where there is not uh, as much. Is the platform necessarily anti-corruption? I mean, like, what what about it is what you're what about what you're doing is necessarily anti-corruption? Because it seems like a registry can be abused by you know by any sort of authority within that system, and you might be able to prove on the registry that it was done illegitimately, but that doesn't mean they can't do it. No, you're absolutely right. So one of the ways that we're trying to make sure that the process is actually anti-corruption is beyond just the transparency. It is being verified by the local community leader and the government. So whether if there is a corrupt party in the local community, then that person should be offset by the government. And if there's a corrupt party in the government, then that person should be offset by the local. So this is where trying to um, establish multiple points of uh, verification uh, removes a central point of authority and in that case makes it much more difficult for one party to exert power over a transaction. Is there already a community that you're working with? Yes, ma'am. Uh, so we have 28 communities, actually. And uh, one of the benefits is that our um, uh, founder in Ghana has had experience. Oh, sorry. He has experience working with the chiefs, and he already has done a lot of um, negotiations with them. So he, he is in a place where having the locals work with him is not difficult because he's already worked with them before on other on other issues. And are you pulling those local people in for uh, for their input on design and how the system can actually serve them? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we're trying to do is figure out what they need the most in their local economy. So they are the ones that are going to be requesting what their development is for. We're not saying, we want you to build this. Uh, they are going to say, we want to build this, this is how much it costs, and we're working with them to help fund what their visions are rather than imposing our visions for development on them. Good. Ragnar, I'd like to bring you into the conversation here. So. Um, why don't you tell us about what you're actually doing as a project? Because I think you're mostly doing industry evangelism, right? Yeah, so I'm working on two things. First, the International Blockchain Real Estate Association, which is a nonprofit. We're just trying to get the real estate industry to adopt blockchain. We've got over 800 members now in 15 countries, I think. And then I have a for-profit startup that we're in semi-stealth mode, and it's basically focused on title. So uh, focused on title, that sounds like it might be a little similar to what Chris is doing. 
It's similar, but we're taking a, a pretty different approach because we're going after, you know, the North American market and especially institutional players and very sophisticated real estate investors. Sure. So I appreciate your stealth and feel free to uh, demur on any of this, but I'm curious for whatever you can tell uh, us about what it is that you're doing. I mean, what are the differences in terms of the need for that market relative to the one that Chris is looking at? Well, it's interesting because people have been talking about blockchain and real estate for a couple of years now, and no one has really succeeded. Uh, you know, at least in the Western market. And it's because they haven't been able to get the incentives right. So when most people have thought, I'm going to create a token for my property, well, what's the value there in the U.S.? Quite frankly, there isn't one unless you've figured out a few other pieces of the puzzle. And so my for-profit startup is taking certain incentives and giving value to that token, which you can do other things with, and there's different value layers to it. So tell me about the nonprofit. Um, you said that you have 600 plus members, 15 countries. So what is the value of joining the organization? What's the, I mean, why, why and who? Yeah, so we've got members in 15 countries and over 800 members. So I think 845 as of this morning. Um, back in December, we had a little under 200. So in the span of about seven months, we've increased by 600 members, mm -hmm. which is actually quite a lot for something that what we're doing. So um, what kind of members do I mean, who, who are your members? Yeah, we've got most of the most of our members are real estate people who are interested in Bitcoin and blockchain. They, they aren't necessarily tech people, which is kind of a nice thing to have in this space, as, as you're aware of. Um, and we've got we've got some pretty big players. We've got people in escrow. We've got brokers. Um, we've got some title insurance people actually pretty high up. I've got a couple government officials that are in county that are actually county recorders, which is awesome. Uh, we've got finance guys uh, and a few tech guys too. But what but, are you missing? Uh, in terms of membership, nothing. We're just trying to get our members to, you know, move forward and give them the tools that they need, encouragement. Sure. So what's the? I mean, like, so what's the kind of trajectory of that organization? When do you think we'll see the first real kind of transactions that use this? And and again, with, without potentially pressing too much into your stealth one, you know, I mean, how do you think the people are going to use this? Um, for title. Um, they're going to use it to transfer their properties like they transfer stocks. Just like you can buy and sell stocks. It has liquidity, it has transparency, it has low cost, speed. That's what we're trying to do with our startup and basically using, you know, digitizing the title into a token. And you'll be able to do that. So that's kind of what we're working on on the for-profit. Uh, on the non-profit side, you know, we're just trying to work with, you know, different government agencies and explaining the benefits of blockchain with real estate. And the first thing we say to them is tax money. They love getting more tax money. Mm -hmm. And the, the way they can do that is, look, if real estate is pretty illiquid and you can only trade it on average, I think a property is sold every like five years, residential, commercial, it's a little bit longer. So they only get that transfer tax every five to seven years. But if you could trade real estate like you can trade stocks, well, guess what? They can get that tax a few times a month potentially several times a day. So that's the first thing I tell them. The second thing I tell them is, hey, we're going to reduce fraud. Right. The fraud thing makes sense to me. The other thing, the transactional velocity of property, that's fascinating to think about. So is that a good thing? Uh, I think so. I mean, anytime you have greater liquidity, I, I think there's a lot of benefits to it.
So, Chris, turning back to you for a second, what do you think about what Ragnar said, and what do you think about his project? Um, you know, Bitland's actually part of the uh, association, oh. so we're obviously in line with his uh, train of thought. Uh, and what he's talking about with tell, uh, explaining to governments the benefits of the taxes that they will see from those transactions, if you make it so that the government systems create uh, less overhead for them to operate, which blockchain-based systems will do. Not only do they have to pay less notaries and less secretaries to operate, then their uh, profit becomes pure profit. And, and even if they're, they can reduce the taxes so because- So you keep the fee, but get rid of all the recorders. Well, that's what I was gonna yeah. say. You, you can even reduce the taxes, but now that your system has a low overhead, a reduced tax system still creates more profit because you're paying less overhead. So if their tax rate was, you know, 50% of that went to overhead, now none of it goes to overhead. Even whatever they reduce it is still going to be long-term more actual profit. So this is where uh, it's a reorganization of how capital is approached where uh, you have governments that take money from taxes and Traditionally, when they take those taxes, they uh, put the production onto private corporations that are taking tax breaks. Well, now, if the government is in a spot where that development is accelerated, whether it's through the sales being accelerated or through the development process being accelerated, uh, not only are those taxes coming to them quicker, but because they are less intensive on the actual uh, population, the taxes can be lowered, but still add more profit. This is where it, it sounds like too good to be true, but when you reduce the overhead, that's where it, it turns into all profit. Well, the, uh, so, you know, just to play devil's advocate here, the counter argument to that is that you're putting a lot of people out of work. Well. Right? <laughs> These are employed positions. So, I mean, like the overhead, yes, so it's more efficient for the government, but it, so, so, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what a right answer is to that. Well, I, I always counter that argument with, should we still have telegraph operators? Right. You know, and this is where at some point uh, economies evolve and economies change and there has to be a culture of uh, a desire to learn new skills in a new economy. And this is where if we're expecting people's jobs to be static for five years, then we're saying the economy is not going to change for five years. And this is a problem with the general approach to retirement in the same position. And I think people have to be more prepared to change jobs as, you know, if you want your economy to change, then you can't be expected to do the same thing for 20 years. So what's the timeline on Bitland? You're putting in your first uh, center now, and that will enable people. So, I mean, how many communities are you going to be able to service from the center? Uh, at least uh, the one village that we're in. So this is where um, what we're going to do with this village is then within the next uh, six months start invest taking foreign investments and putting them into the local communities and tracking the outcomes to say oh if one dollar went into the system one dollar directly went into the community and then they produced x with it so this is where following the dollar from the entrance into the system to the product is going to be what we do over the next six months to show we're not only, uh, we not only built the community, but we took your dollars and turned them into a cocoa farmer, uh, turn, making more cocoa and increasing his profit or whatever. Uh, whatever results we get is 
what we're trying to do over the next six months is take uh, take our results and show them to people, essentially. And that's what our goal is for the next six months. I'd like you to talk briefly about how this project changes the lives of people on the ground. Mm -hmm. So one of the uh, biggest problems in an area like Ghana is that because there is a corrupt government, it prevents foreign investment from coming in. So you have a point where the local economy stagnates because there's only so much capital. And this is where uh, you look at the transition between um, manual labor and automated labor. It empowered farmers to produce more even though they were working less. So bringing new systems uh, will obviously change the landscape of the jobs that are currently in place. But um, when you're empowering the people to take the capital and develop the areas the way they want, we're not forcing a new paradigm on them. So this is where enabling them to develop in their own uh, path is what we're trying to do. And um, it's more so bringing in new capital to people that they didn't have it before. So then if you can uh, start producing more bread in an area and you can sell more bread, well, that's going to benefit the local area they're going to be more well-fed and they're going to start to benefit from your company doing better. And then the uh, effect will hopefully be that as more people come into the system, the businesses get more capital and uh, develop more locally. That sounds like so much more than a real estate blockchain. Yeah. Uh, so, it is. So it, it, is. It, it seems like the scope is really, really broad. Yes. Um, can you talk specifically about how the blockchain ties into these goals and, mm -hmm. and what this looks like on a step-by-step -step basis? So ultimately, the blockchain serves as the backbone or foundation of the system because at the end of the day, uh, every property transaction uh, needs some sort of chain of custody to be proven. And establishing a blockchain creates an independent ledger that shows chains of custody. And as long as this chain of custody is um, preserved and intact, whoever owns the property is shown on that ledger. So this is where once we can establish a uh, protected uh, ledger that shows chain of custody, now we can start doing um, mortgages or loans that are usually related to a property title where they didn't have the property title before. And this is uh, even even just selling the land. You couldn't sell it legally unless you had a property title. So this is where um, right now they do it, but it's not a legal transaction. So they're changing hands, but the government isn't recognizing, recognizing these transactions as being actually legal. So, uh, Ragnar, how do you feel about investing in Ghana? Are you interested in investing? <laughs> I mean, like, well, well so, so that, like, does this change anything for you? Uh, it, I like to stick with what I know, and I don't know Ghana, so I'm going to stay in the U.S. <laughs> okay, well, Chris, then let me throw it back to you. Um, you're talking about investment, and you're talking about, you know, pulling money into Ghana, mm -hmm. and I can see why it would be better than the current system, obviously, where you're talking about you know property changing hands, and there just is no title. Obviously, a blockchain is preferable to that, mm -hmm. but is that enough? I mean, is that no, it's not. Okay. And this is where um, what we are trying to do is establish connections between communities. So uh, like you're saying, you don't know much about Ghana. Well, 
you don't have to know much about Ghana if we show you where your dollar goes. If your dollar goes into our system and you see that it goes to uh, a specific person in Ghana, and then that person, like in the same way that Kiva shows exactly what a person is doing with the microloan, that's what's important. You don't have to know anything about their local culture. As long as you know that your investment is being protected and that that person is doing exactly what they said that they were going to do with that investment, that's all that really matters at the end of the day. So this is where we're trying to create an agnostic system that doesn't need a person to know anything about the local culture to know, is this person going to scam me? Well, our system is going to protect it because we're working with the local government. The local government's going to protect your investment. And this is, uh, you're going to be able to see from beginning to end where your dollars are going. So this is where it removes the necessity for someone to know a lot about uh, the local culture. But in, in that, there is sort of a cultural barrier where someone might say, I don't, I've heard a lot of bad things about Ghana and I've heard that it's corrupt, so I don't want to invest there. But this is where we have to break down those. It's a perception problem. It is. Yeah. And, and until we have something that is a counterbalance to that perception, that perception, that perception will always exist. Mm. So, Ragnar, um, what do you want to talk about that we haven't gone into yet? Because there are a couple of areas that I could press you on, but I think that we're going to find us back in the same, it's your secret sauce. Yeah, no, we can go back to title. I think, because there's a lot of misunderstandings around title in the U.S., um, especially I think that people think we need all sorts of new regulations for blockchain to be adopted in real estate, and we really don't. Um, also, in the U.S., it's, it's a quasi-government um, system of title. Everyone thinks, oh, it's down at the county's office. It's really not. It's really at the title insurance offices where most of the action happens. And it's interesting because the title insurance companies actually sort of co-opted the counties. And this happened, you know, years ago. And so what, what you really have to look at is you don't necessarily need the government to start doing this. What you really just need is the buyer and the seller to say, hey, we want to use the system because ultimately they're the ones who drive the deal. And ultimately, they're the other ones who exchange money. So I think people need to understand that we're not, as my startup and both IBREA, is we're not trying to first get the government on board and then employ it. We're trying to give value to the title and to the token that, that doesn't require government you know, blessing, but just by transferring back and forth that has value. Sure. And, and the second thing is that people forget that when it comes to title, there's two parts of title. There's a transfer of the property and there's the recording of that property. The transfer of the property is not done at the county. That's simply done between the buyer and the seller. They sign the papers, they put the rubber stamp, they exchange the money, and then that's it. Afterwards, you go to the county and record. Now, by law, in most states, you don't have to record, but you probably should. <laughs> and you don't have to record the same day. You know, there's instances where people back in, you know, back in the real estate boom, uh, were taking weeks and even in some cases months to record because they were just burning through money. So, and I just want to jump in on that and say um, I, I grew up in the Detroit area, and Ragnar, you've heard this because we've been on shows together before. But um, there, there's a big problem with having a lag time in recording, mm. and here it is: if I have a if I have that deed and I take it down to the recorder's office today, and then I try to sell you that same property tomorrow. If the deed has not been recorded, when you do a search on title, it won't appear. 
And what that means and what actually happened in Detroit was people were selling their property a number of different times and taking advantage of that lag time. So there was about a three-month delay between when you would actually mm -hmm. attempt to record the document and when it would be recorded. And so people were taking advantage of that, selling their property two, three, and four times. And, and, and people were left saying, wait a minute, I followed the process. I did everything right. I checked the title. I got title insurance. Mm -hmm. And those people were still left holding the bag. And so I think that this efficiency is, is a really, really big deal. I think it's a really, um, it's a big improvement. So the transaction, so assuming that this is tokenized, that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking yeah. about the, so the title is represented as, a, or the ownership is represented as a token, mm -hmm. and it makes it so that the transaction and the transfer of title can be effectively the same, at the same time, right? Yeah, so uh, I think T0, that company, they say the trade is a settlement, something like that. Yeah. So the transfer is the recording at the same time, versus now, you transfer the property, you drive down to the county the next day or something. Whereas on with if it's a token, it's a blockchain token, it's done, you know, at the same time. I also think that's interesting because it puts the recording with the people who actually have skin in the game. Right? So yep. so they have an incentive. You know, if you're if you're a county of deeds recorder, I'm not suggesting that they're not doing their jobs. What I'm suggesting is that there's much more incentive if it's you and I that have exchanged money, I want to make sure that, that title is recorded. And so if I can effectuate that in the middle of the transaction, I think that's a significant improvement as well. Yeah. And people also forget the banks. Everyone when they think of title, they think of, you know, the county government or even title insurance, but everyone forgets the banks. The banks would really benefit from this because they have a lot more transparency and security, especially if you can do it with a token that's a multi-sig type situation where the bank is, you know, has one of the... But it's not even keys. really the custodian. Yeah, it's not yeah. the custodian, but, but wouldn't they love to be able to have to, you know, sign off on something cryptographically on, uh, when there's a transfer? Sure. Well, and even in that, um, what, she, what she was talking about with the Detroit problem of multiple sales of the same property, well, you compound that to the entire country of Ghana. And this is where uh, the delays in processing have created an environment where that's rife across the entire country. And this is, you know, this is why they have problems with foreign investment, because foreigner or foreign investors will know that they might be buying a double sold property and they won't buy it because it's the culture that they're used to from Ghana. So this is where establishing a system that is immediate, transparent, and ultimately prevents those double cells from happening, uh, or triple cells or quadruple cells, whatever, um, benefits the country, the locals, the banks. Uh, it benefits everyone to prevent double selling except the person who's doing the double selling. Yeah, and going back to the double selling thing, if something is a token, especially if it's a multi-signature type of token, you can't transfer the property by simply going on Photoshop and creating a fake deed and then selling that off. You actually have to have the bank sign off with their private mm -hmm. key or, you know, you and your lawyer, you and your, your spouse or well, you and, and the, yeah, you whoever. Just, you just can't create a fake because it just fundamentally is wrong. It's it basically is impossible as far as we know mm -hmm. so far. So that's another benefit both to the banks and to people. So it automatically prevents fraud. So uh, both of you are working on projects in the space. You know, today was an interesting day because uh, we had the Ethereum hard fork. <laughs> and uh, one of the things about a land registry or any of these things that seems important is immutability. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to kind of just uh, throw out there as a general question, 
What do you think about, you know, like if someone was going to build what you're building, yeah. what would you build it on and what are you building each of your platforms on? So we're building it on BitShares and we're building our own BitShares, uh, interesting. Block. Are you using actual BitShares or are you using your own uh, spun blockchain? We created uh, the cadastral token, which is our color coin, and then we're creating a blockchain for the cadastral. Uh -huh. So the BitShares protocol will serve as our security layer uh, as they have their own proof of stake hashing. Uh, and then if someone wanted to access the cadastral to try to hack it, they would have to get through BitShares first. Um, but then using our token will make it so that our transactions are only going to be identified with land titles. So this is where blockchain bloat becomes an issue because you're trying to process all the transactions in the same place. Well, there's no reason to process groceries and land transactions on the same chain. Uh, so this is where we're approaching it and establishing a unique land title transaction chain specifically uh, for this, but then because we are uh, using BitShares as our, as our base protocol, this is, um, I, I believe that if you make a mistake on a transaction, you have to use another transaction to fix it because otherwise uh, there's no immutability. And this is where I, I think one of the biggest problems with the Ethereum hard fork is that Conceptually, they've become another central authority that just took their power and changed the, the ledger. So if the idea of decentralization is to prevent a government from being able to execute that, well, they just did exactly what they're supposedly against. So this is where, in my, in my opinion, if you have a blockchain and you make a mistake, it should, if you're claiming your blockchain's immutable, you should have another transaction to fix that, fix that mistake, not fork it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because the International Blockchain Real Estate Association is also working on smart contracts. And so I've gotten a lot of pressure to really focus more on Ethereum and, and look into it. And I've just been resistant, maybe because I'm a grumpy old man. But I'm kind of glad that I did because this Ethereum hard fork showed um, the risk of not sticking with Bitcoin. And so what we're building on is is Bitcoin. I don't think the the... the Ethereum problem has to do with Bitcoin so much as you had a bunch of people establishing a leaderless system that had never led anything before, so they knew little about leadership. So you can't have someone create a leaderless system that doesn't know how to lead people. And this is, to me, one of the biggest problems that the DAO and Ethereum had that caused the ultimate failure, and it's not necessarily the software. Um, they're... They wrote poor smart contracts. It was just a bunch of mistakes. Well, how do you write a poor smart contract in this day and age when nobody <laughs> knows what a good smart contract looks like? That's true. That's also true. And I, and this is where, um, I guess to me, this was not this is not a failure of the software so much as a human error. This is human error on a massive scale. And that's what we saw. Sure. So, um, so Chris, that's a really interesting approach. Can I summarize it as we'll have a blockchain when we actually need one? Uh, I think, in a sense, yes, because uh, if the will of the people is supposed to be at the core of what we're doing, simply arbitrarily saying we're going to follow code even though it's not working in the benefit of the people is not good either. So this is where it has to be relative to what the final goal is. So if the final goal is to build something that's immutable, well, then the will of the people isn't really important. But if the final goal is to be something that benefits the people, well, you have to take the will of the people into account. So you can't have something that is completely 
immutable represent the will of the people at the end of the day, as the fork has shown, because uh, at some point, the will of the people is not homogenous. And it's, it, 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 it presents an ideological paradox to have something that is supposedly for the people that ends up working against them. I think you're talking about governance on a grand scale, mm-hmm. and, and I think you're talking about, you know, when we, when we saw the Dow, um, one of the challenges is that uh, if if you say that code is controlling and code is the only thing that controls, there's a big problem, and that problem is that we don't know how to code without bugs. Right. And so <laughs> if the code controls, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, what I'm saying is we have to acknowledge the fact that we don't know how to code without mm-hmm. bugs, and so there will be issues that arise. And so um, I, I, I'm excited to see your governance model because I think that's one of the most interesting things about this space right now is we're able to experiment and actually build governance models in a way that we haven't been able to do in the past mm-hmm. and experiment with decentralized governance and and these sorts of combining what is the public will versus even what about minority shareholders or what about people who the majority is not actually represented, right? Mm-hmm. And so like in the United States, we have, you know, we have our rights and we have things like freedom of speech and that's to protect unpopular minority interests, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I'm excited to see how you develop these these solutions to these very real problems. Well, on that um, subject, one of the things that we're doing is sort of taking the best of the United States government system and having sort of a three-branch approach where you have the DAO, which was supposed to be completely decentralized and democratic. Well, you take that and make that the democratic branch. And then you have um, an ombudsperson branch that comes in, if there is a vote that's deadlocked, then those people are informed voters to break a deadlock. And then you have the executive branch that has uh, sort of a code uh, authority that is supposed to be in the name of the people, but they, if you have the checks and balances and to override the other, then it becomes a system that is taking, like I said, the best of the American system and combining it with the best of decentralization. Because decentralization is not new. It's 4,000 years old, goes back to the beginning of ancient Chinese civilization. So this is where if you're looking at the Byzantine general's problem, then you're missing a lot of decentralization. And until you go back far enough to see that decentralization and centralization are an ebb and flow, it's... Uh, it's always relative. Sometimes centralization is better than decentralization. Sometimes decentralization is better than centralization. It has to be relative to the current situation, and always saying one or the other is better, I think, is a mistake. I think, uh, you know, real estate title, we have to think about it existing for decades, if not hundreds of years. And so I think which blockchain you pick really matters. And a lot of people compare, you know, Bitcoin to a honey badger, but I never liked that because, you know, things don't attack honey badgers. Um, I think Bitcoin is more like a cockroach. Everything attacks a cockroach, um, but yet it survives. And everything is trying to attack Bitcoin and yet it survives. So for that reason, you know, we're putting everything on the Bitcoin blockchain because I just think it has the highest chance of being around in 50 years. It just doesn't want to die. This episode featured content from Chris, Ragnar, Pamela, and Adam, and was assembled by Adam. Today's magic word is title. That's T-I-T-L-E. You know what to do. See you next time.